quick word on our sponsors. ScalarLight is a quantum healing company using scalar energy devices that work remotely, giving distant healing anywhere in the world. In conjunction with the Clockwork Junkie podcast, you can get a 30-day free trial. No credit cards, no debit cards. It is 100% free. To sign up, all you have to do is click the link in the description below, add your name, your email, and upload a selfie. Scalar Light, a new era of quantum healing. I'm not into podcasts. Everyone keeps trying to, you've got to listen to, I'm not into podcasts. I like a bit of music. You can separate yourself from the pack so much more easily by being consistent than by being talented or enthusiastic. There's this stat that I love about podcasts. Uh, 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode 3. And of the 90% that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So by making 21 podcast episodes, you're in the top percent of all podcasters ever in history. Consistency beats talent and enthusiasm. Hey, how are things? This is Mark here and welcome back to the Clockwork Junkie podcast. This is episode 222. Thank you for tuning in and you are genuinely more than welcome. My guest on the show today is Dara Fleming. Dara is an author. He wrote, he's, he released his book in uh, November of last year called Lonely Boy. It's doing fantastically well as we speak. Essentially, it is a collection of essays that chronicle his life and in it he speaks about losing his best friend in 2012 to suicide. He speaks about mental health at length, about loneliness, about isolation, about relationship and grief. Um, it's a podcast that resonated with me because I suffer from mental health with, for 10 years and thankfully I'm over three years better now. But although I'm not by suicide, I also lost my best friend um, in a car accident. So this is a podcast for, there's a lot of information in it, I suppose, and there's no egos whatsoever. Dara and I did not know each other before this podcast began, but a lot of stuff that he said resonated with me. And I think a lot of people would enjoy this podcast. It's just two guys we're being extremely open and honest and talking about mental health, relationships, loneliness, losing a friend and all that that entails. Um, thank everyone for the support. Listen, you're being fantastic sharing my stuff and following me on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to have a look at Skater Light. Um, as I said, this is podcast 222. Then Skater Light uh, finishes on podcast 227. So now is the time to get your 30 day free try. It is free, by the way. I've done it myself. Also, my link tree is in the description where you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. And there's other bits and bobs there as well. And, um, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you can follow me there. And if you are listening to the podcast, I suppose, be nice if you haven't done so to follow me. Um, and thank you for anyone who has done that. Um, also, the PayPal is there. Look, you can make a one-time donation to the PayPal to help the podcast. It's paypal.me forward slash clockwork junkie. Again, that link is in the description. Genuinely thank you to anyone who has done that. Um, I, w- I really, really appreciate it. And and thank you to anyone who's going to do it today. I'll also leave Dara's link to his Instagram account in the description as well. And where you can go and check out his book, Lonely Boy. I'll be doing something, as you know, I've left YouTube and I have done. But I'm going to leave one or two clips of this podcast up on YouTube. If you want to go and have a look at us talking there. Um, I'll leave those links in the description of this as well. So thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Mark McCormack and welcome to the Clockwork Junkie podcast. I'm very happy to have you on because like over the last four or five podcasts, I have chatted to a musician, but I've done a couple of what I've been told have been true crime podcasts. <laughs> um, it's just stories that I heard and I thought they're good. So I've done three in the space of four podcasts and people seem nice. to have 
like them. People are asking me to go to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and change the genre of this podcast to true crime. But I can't do that because, number one, I've never listened to a true crime podcast in my life. Yeah. And number two, I may not do one again for six months, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it'll be like three three in a row and then gone for four or five months and then back to true crime. But yeah, you just don't want to box yourself in, I suppose. Yeah, but the... The main reason I started the podcast would have been obviously when I recovered from mental health and my goal was that if it ever got viewership, like I didn't know at the time what was going to happen to the podcast, but I just thought if I ever got viewership, because like I'm in my 40s, I'm not famous, no one should give a shit, but over constant annoying people to listen, they've started to listen, so it's kind of going Mm -hmm. okay. But my goal was to talk to people who are open and honest with no bullshit. So I'm absolutely mm-hmm. delighted to have you on. And a big shout out to Chris Sherlock for um, connecting both of us. Up. Absolutely, yeah. No, Chris, does, uh, he's been a great help as well, uh, just helping me. Because, like, um, obviously I like writing and I like mental health stuff, but I don't have a clue about the, you know, the media side of things to an extent. So he's been a great help. So really appreciate that. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Definitely shout out to Chris. Um, so look. What are we here to talk about today? Many things, really. But um, in November of last year, your book came out, Lonely Boy. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, first of all. That's um. Thank you very much. I've talked to so many authors on here, and they all say the same thing: that the writing process is the most, one of the most gruesome, grueling experiences of their life. Trying to get it right and bleeding yourself. How did you find that? Yeah, like especially because you know we live in this um this era of uh, instant gratification with like. A social media where like when you want something you want it now and we're writing a book it's the very it's the antithesis of that where it takes like the first draft a dra- I got to a draft with Lonely Boy that I was happy with after a year and a half and then the book that came out is quite different to that so it takes a couple of years takes patience you know some days you sit down and you've nothing to say that you think is uh worthwhile and then other days you know, it's coming out of you. So it's just, I think the the big thing is patience and that can be uh, hard to find in this day and age. So, Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I have, I, I'm much better on the patience front, but I'm still not fantastic. Um, like, I, I do want to go back to the book at some stage, but just another question on it, I suppose, that I just like, it's not a book as in a beginning, a middle and an end. It's kind of a, a collection of essays. It's, it's fair to mm-hmm. say that. Why Why was it that way? Um, well, I guess like just just because the nature of mental health and mental health struggle doesn't have a beginning and middle and definitely doesn't really have an end because, you, you know, you can. Uh, and I, I found that like I came out of the first bout of my depression and, you know, I thought I was cured and I'd never have to go back to it. And you come back into it and you come back out of it. So it's it's an it's a never ending journey. So that's why the book didn't really make sense to have a definitive ending because, you know, there could be follow-up, there could be new things that happen. So I didn't really want to write it in that way. So that's where the essays kind of made the most sense. That's one of the best answers I've ever gotten on this podcast, by the way. This is episode <laughs> 222. Um, Excellent. Yeah, Let's mental health that. is not, um, unfortunately, it's not a straight line. It's zigzags. And some mm-hmm. of the zigs and some of the sags, unfortunately, go backwards. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm fully recovered now for well over three years. But at one stage, maybe five or six years ago I thought I was fully recovered as well and I went mm-hmm. off my depression tablets and everything was fine and then when in the space of two months I came back I'd even say worse than ever 
And it was one of the most hopeless feelings I ever had in my life. I said, like, I spent, I had it for 10 years. So seven years, I fought it and I won and it was gone and it was over. I was like, I felt like Leonidas in the film 300. This is Sparta. I've done it, you know, and I couldn't wait to tell the world. And then it came back. I actually couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Um, But the amount of stuff that I learned from it is like I'm a completely different person now. Um, Mm. And and you speak about an awful lot of stuff that I've spoken about as well. Um, And I want to get into that loneliness being one. Um, That's the weirdest feeling in the whole world, loneliness. Mm -hmm. Um, So so the book came out in November. um, Was that? Very much. Oh, your voice has gone there. Sorry there, two seconds. Okay. Okay, Uh, yeah, my audio just went a bit bizarre. Um, But yeah, as as you were saying, I think... You know, especially when you when you recover and then you go back into it, I think there's um there's like an added level, a like layer of disappointment with yourself almost because you're like, oh, I thought I got through this and now I'm back in it, and you you know, there's a there's a level of shame with having to tell people that, and that's quite difficult. And I think that goes across not just mental health, but if you're recovering from like an addiction or anything, something like that, you know, it is, you know, the relapse is is almost harder the second time around because you know in the in the first instance it's brand new and then in the second instance you're like oh i've been here before and i'm back here and that can be really tough um but i mean fair play for you know acknowledging that and having the the wherewithal to you know recover for so long and then come back into it but to get back out of it is you know admirable and it's not easy oh well thank you man definitely isn't easy man my god like i I don't have any enemies, but I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, um, yeah. mental health of any way, shape or form. But look, I suppose a way to start would be there's people that have listened to every episode of this podcast and they've known that I've spoken in the past about my be- best friend who passed away in a car crash. Yeah. And how like that wasn't the reason that I got depression right away. Um, mm-hmm. Depression was, I do describe it as death by a thousand cuts, you know. Yeah, that's the way yeah. I describe the book. Can you just talk? I mean, I I don't know how open you want to be or what you want to talk about. I I'll assume it's carte blanche on everything um, that's Absolutely. in the book. But um, so can you just talk about 2012 and your best friend and what happened? Yeah, so the anniversary is actually coming up on Friday, uh, 20th of January. Um, I remember I met him. <clears throat> so we would have got a half day on <clears throat> on Wednesday afternoons, and he was in the year ahead of me, and none of this was unusual but he came up to me after school and he's like oh do you want to get lunch and I was meeting friends who were in my own year in town so I was like oh I can't today whatever but uh, we were on the same basketball team so um I was like I'll just see you training tonight like whatever we we're training on Wednesday nights uh and he was like yeah yeah no worries no worries and then you know he didn't show up to train which wouldn't have been totally unusual because uh Irby tended to think homework was optional <laughs> and so um if if his mother found out, she'd be like, you're not going training until your homework's done. So I thought it was another case of that, which is, you know, fair enough. Uh, and then, yeah, so then got to Thursday morning and I got a phone call off my, my dad and he's like, uh, Irby's in hospital. Um, he's after overdosing and he's alive, but he's just, you know, in recovery. He's in a kind of induced coma. And I was like, you know, in total shock. I was like, what? what the hell is going on so I went up to him after school and he was you know still passed out but he was there and I was like okay look and they told me you know what happened that he tried to take his own life uh and so there was a lot of 
concern, but you know, there was hope there because he was still alive. Like, we can get through this, you know, he has a second chance. And um, during the night, then he got up to go to the bathroom, and because he'd taken so much of what he'd taken, there was blood clots everywhere that weren't really. I've probably known the extent of, and when he stood up, the blood clots ended up uh, being the reason he died. And then on the Friday morning, me and our, like he, me and like some of his other closest friends went up to the hospital to visit him. You know, we brought a card and all that kind of stuff. And it was then that we found out that he'd passed. Um, and that was really because I remember walking into the kind of room where they tell people this kind of news, and his mother was in there, and she was in absolute agony, like. And it was just, you know, world shattering, um, total shock. And, you know, from there, it, it's a really tough experience because, you know, one, I'd never really heard about mental health, like mental health and suicide were things that happened to other people in other worlds, you know, it wasn't part of our experience. And that was my introduction to it. And, you know, the grief process in cases like that can, can drag on and, you know, mine just morphed into depression from there. And like, again, because I didn't have the education, I always thought depression was that you're sad all the time, that you just feel sadness. But for me, it was just total emotional numbness where I couldn't feel sadness, couldn't feel happiness. There was no anger. There was just nothing. And because of that, and because I didn't really know what depression was, I didn't think anything was wrong. I just thought oh, I'm just an adult now, and because I've experienced a traumatic event, I've just become an adult quicker, and this is how all adults feel. But as I found out, you know, over the years, I think it was three years of that before I found out that I had depression, and then I was like, oh, people do actually feel emotions uh, quite often, and I just wasn't feeling anything. So we, you know, we started counselling uh, in 2015. And, you know, once I got out of the first beta counselling after about six months, uh, quite similar to yourself, you know, I felt recovered. And there's kind of a, it is a kind of sweet naivety to think like, oh, I've recovered from depression, so I'll never have to go back there. And that's how I was feeling like, you know, I was like, oh, now I, and that's when I started doing the blog, Thoughts Too Big. Uh, and trying to help other people but like there were still issues that I wasn't really acknowledging I wasn't working on my mental health every day so it started to slip again uh, and that's just kind of been the the road like it's just coming in and out of it but I suppose today what's different is that I can see the signs when they're there and I know what to do for myself when I do slip back into kind of depressive bouts. That's what I am um, I say that all the time as well like I say I'm fully recovered but um like i'm recovered at least three years and probably 10 times in that three years it, it could have kept coming back so it's probably like a a noose around my neck for the rest of my life for, yeah. for want of a analogy but sometimes i'm sitting there and half a day passes and i go oh i don't feel right and i say that's mm. the depression and then yeah. there's certain things that i've learned over the years probably the hard way and and uh, not quick enough but I've learned them and I know how to do them and what to do to get myself right again um yeah that's half the battle and it's great to hear you saying that but I've I've heard you tell that story on one or two podcasts before and you always start with the same way and the same way is that um you 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 start by saying that he reached out to Mm -hmm. get something to eat and so were you blaming yourself in terms of that? Like, if if I um if I had have went to lunch, mm-hmm. that maybe yeah. like that's the first thing that springs to my mind because that's what I would think. 
Yeah, and I carried that for a long time, and I do go over that in the book. Like, <clears throat> like if if I'd gone to lunch, would he have felt that he could talk to me about it? And you know, part of me wants for that to be true, but there's another part of me, the one that feels the guilt, that like, no, no, he wouldn't have opened up because then you know, I don't have to feel bad about it. But it it's tough because we we're living like I was seventeen, and we we're living in an era where like no one really talked about their mental health or their emotions. So like I would have never really had, like we were best friends and I would have never, or very rarely had a, like a heart to heart real open conversation with him. Cause that's just the, the way we were brought up. So, but I did carry that for, for a long time and, you know, eventually learned to leave it go because there was nothing I could change, but I did feel a lot of guilt and, you know, regret about not meeting him for lunch that day because maybe he could he could have opened up. Yeah, it's like um. So at one point during my depression, I was sitting in I had an apartment and a nice car and a good job and everything was fine. But I had depression. I had it for a while at this stage. Mm. And anyone that listened to this podcast would have heard me tell this story. But I think I should tell it maybe even for your benefit. If you do it, it's a really really short story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I sat in the apartment and I said this is what it feels like to want to kill yourself. So just before people kill themselves, this is what they feel like, like mm-hmm. what I feel like right now. Yeah. Now I decided right away not to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I was tougher than anyone, because I was lucky. Yeah. It could have went the other way. No problem. If you were my best friend and you come into my apartment that very moment and says to me, well, listen, Mark, I feel like you feel now and I'm going to kill myself. I would have said there no problem. I wouldn't have stopped you. Yeah, because I knew the way if so, if all of my family had called to my house at that moment and if I had decided to do it, nothing would have changed it because you said something earlier on and you're absolutely spot on 100 percent. People always ask me, what was it like when I had it? And then now that I'm better, what was it like when you had it? Did you feel low? Did you feel sad? No, I felt absolutely nothing at all whatsoever. Yeah, and um, I think for... 100% and I think you you could probably relate to this as well where it's only after coming out of it that I see I was feeling nothing because when I was in it because you're feeling nothing you can't really register that but it was only after coming out of it when I started to feel emotions again I was like I was goosed for three four years there and I had no idea about it and that's that's a scary realization like you know, um, I wish I was as clever as you. Um, I realized I had it for 10 years. I, I realized five years into it that I'm numb. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I said, this is bad, but it's better than the alternative, which is to feel like this. Like It wasn't even to feel the pain. It was just like um, your whole soul has gone into oblivion. And yeah. when people are talking, it's just like they're murmuring in the background. You can't hear what anyone's saying. Nobody understands you because they haven't went through it. Yeah. Um, and of course that's not true. You know, I, I realize now is that, um, I know it, for instance, when I speak to somebody who had suffered from mental health, not somebody who had a sad couple of months, someone who genuinely had mental health, you can understand them straight away. You can empathize, you know, exactly what they're going through. And the amount of people that reached out to me since I started, I, this is almost, I think it's in at the end of May, it's three years old, this podcast. Yeah. Thousands of people have reached out, but hundreds of people that I actually know. Mm-hmm. That never, haven't even told their family they had depression have taught me yeah, at different it, times meeting me on the street I, emails messages and i think that's you know because 
because you're talking openly about your mental health, it allows it alerts people to know that they can talk to you about their mental health because you're open mm-hmm. about it. And I find that over the years as well, where the more you're open and vulnerable and honest, the more people message and be like, oh, I feel like that too, but I can't, I've never felt like I could tell anyone. So that is testament to the work you're doing. Well, thank you. But like, and you know what pissed me off, slightly off topic? Um, when I see these people on TV or on podcasts, I know I have a cheek saying that we're on podcasts, but I'm going to say it talking about their depression and what it was like. And I knew within seconds, you never had depression champion. I know by the way you're talking, you yeah. had a bad day, something went, you didn't feel great. You never had it. And mm-hmm. I just know it's, it's like, um, you know, people who were in Vietnam come back and they talk to each other. What unit were you in? Where were you? And then and if, yeah. if, if you're bluffing, you can be found out in seconds. I yeah. see people that are well known, uh, kind of promoting themselves as a mental health awareness advocate or whatever the fuck they're calling it now. And it's nonsense. They never had it. If I had a conversation live with them on the Late Late Show for five minutes, I'd prove they didn't get it because they just don't know. That used to drive me daft. So I said, if I ever do come out and talk about it, I'll be honest. Yeah. And I think um, it's very clear, as you said, very easy to see who's genuinely trying to help someone by sharing their story and someone who's trying to use mental health and mental health awareness to gain clout and gain recognition and you know that that happens with a lot of different categories of like social um stuff but it it is just par for the course like the more something is talked about people see that they can get recognition for talking about it as well and they go down the road and it's just disingenuous and it's hard to see but there's enough people doing real work that it overshadows it to a point. It's it, it's the messages that you get that you don't talk about. Yeah. Like there's people who have sent me messages and if I had posted them of how I helped them, yeah, it, I would look like fucking Gandhi. Yeah, yeah. But I don't do it because that's... Um, I want people to listen to the podcast and perhaps enjoy it or tell me he's talking shit or whatever. <laughs> You're, everyone's entitled to opinion, but... Like I've 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 never posted a message that I got off anyone, but yes, there's someone who I know never had mental health, who's talking about it for about four months, who's doing a twenty euro advertisement on Instagram every single day, mm-hmm. and they're talking like they're Jesus himself. You know, it's nonsense. You know, yeah, but that's one thing that I hate. But um, no, I agree. I totally agree. Like especially if you like that thing, if like someone messages you and. The, you use that to make yourself look good on social media like you take a screenshot and you post it then like are you doing this for the right reason or are you doing this to look a certain way and I th- I think and you know you've talked to it as well it's very easy to see those people yeah yeah but you know like so like the losing the best friend thing is a fucking nightmare you know mm-hmm. it's an absolute nightmare I, I was we were best friends for about 12 years. Um, I woke up one Saturday morning. He was working in, uh, he was a soldier, as was I, but I had left at this point. He was still a soldier. He was driving to work and crashed yeah. and died. I couldn't believe it, you know, because even even the small things, like I'd if if I like you, if you're family, like mm-hmm. I have your back 100%. And if I say I have your back, I have your back, whether you're mm-hmm. right or wrong, you know, as long yeah. as you don't kill somebody, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. He's one of the only people that had my back, mm-hmm. whether I was right or wrong. So even something as small as one of the things I remember back in the day that I missed an awful lot is that, and, I, and I'm only actually thinking about it again now that we're talking is 
and it revolves around alcohol. But when we used to go for a pint together, like we wouldn't be sitting in each other's company all night. We talked to everyone who was around. And every so often, he'd be at one end of the bar, I'd be at the other end. And he'd just give me a little nod to say, everything all right? And I'd say, yeah. You know? Yeah. But no Small one has thing. done that since, you know, ever, like. And yeah. it's, um, like, I remember at the time, and you think, you spoke about this, and, I, and actually, this is kind of a, a unrehearsed segue. But, um, <laughs> Beautiful. I was thinking then, like, like, I'm not getting into any more serious relationships, whether it be with a partner or whether it be with a friend, because... Um, it was just demonstrated to me how quickly it can be taken away. And it yeah. was like it was all for nothing. Now, you, you talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, I, I completely resonate with that. Like, so, you know, for me, I guess, and it was m- mostly subconscious until I looked into it and wrote about it. But I think for me, it was that, you know, you have these amazing friendships and relationships. And then, like, my nervous friendship was, you know, the best like I've ever had and then he was taken and for me I was like the pain of losing someone you're close to is tougher than being alone so I was like so the answer to that is to never put myself in that position where I can be hurt like that again because then I can't get hurt from the external but what I learned is that if you do that if you close yourself off to people you just start getting hurt from the inside because you're you are restricting a very important and a very beautiful part of life, which is, you know, sharing your life with other people. Uh, but that seemed like the the best way to protect myself at the time was to be like, all right, that's it. We're done with. I don't even know that that's the wrong thing to do at the time. It, it might mm. be the right thing to do. It's like, like evolution, self-preservation. I, yeah. like, I mean, look, a psychologist might listen to this and say you're wrong, but I don't know that that's the wrong thing to do. Like some people mm. jump straight into another, whether it be a, sexual relationship with a partner and they're not ready for it you know there's kind of yeah. so maybe it did the right thing i done that as well by the way mm-hmm. the very same as what you've done yeah it, it definitely feels like it was a protective thing and for sure it makes sense for a certain amount of time but i think for for me it just went on for too long like it went on for the bones of a decade and yeah that's just it's hard especially when you know you you would like to be able to share your life with someone, but you're you're restricting yourself. And I think that, um, you know, conflict is what causes loneliness because you want to be around people, but you're choosing not to be. And that, for me, caused quite a lot of isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's hard for, and like, we've only met, like everyone's mm-hmm. here in this live, we've never spoken before this, yeah. so it's not as if we're best buddies telling everyone what to do. We're literally just met. You heard yeah, us yeah. talking at the beginning, um, but I think it's hard for people like us, and I don't mean like two men. I mean it could be women. It could be. It's just I think it's hard for people like us to form meaningful relationships at times. And the reason I think it's hard is because the majority of people, um, rightly or wrongly, I'm not here to judge, but they're in a bubble of what life is. Mm-hmm. But when the bubble is bursted, as in you, you lose someone very close or you suffer from mental health, like properly, deeply suffer from mental health when you're isolated, when you're lonely to the bones of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get yourself to a place where you can go out and do a podcast and talk to everyone or write a book and do loads of media to get the message out there in the, in the hope of helping someone else. Yeah. Like you would never, you can never be fully, truly happy with someone who, is in the bubble 
Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, I totally, man. You're you're speaking my language. It is. A, it's once you see behind behind the curtain, it's kind of hard to come back into people who haven't. Um, and like you know, I don't. It's weird because you don't w- wish for people to have to go through that experience, but there's a certain level of understanding and there's a certain level of, there's just something you can't, like once you know something, you can't unknow it. And I think 100%. that's the the, re, the the main thing about it is that life and, you know, the Stoics said, like life is suffering. And, you know, it seems like you've been tr- through a lot of trauma. I, I've been through a lot of trauma. And when, when you have that, it's kind of hard to, fully leave it go you can get to a place where you can function well enough but the, it's always kind of there in the background like that those mm. dark years or that it's just a kind of scare on your soul almost and <laughs> yeah scare on your soul jesus christ <laughs> that's actually a very good analogy um but you know like like i don't feel it's a scar on my soul to be honest um i'm happily over it um mm. I, I i wish it didn't happen but I'm a much better person now. Yeah. Um, and not to other people, by the way. I couldn't give a fiddler's fuck about other people. It's me. As long as I'm a better person than me, first of all. Yeah. Um, I learned the hard way that I come first. Always. Yeah. Uh, you have 10 children and a wife and you have this uh, irrelevant. I'll always come first. Mm-hmm. Always. Because you can't help anybody if you're not okay yourself. I always use the Absolutely. analogy that if me and you, for example, were in quicksand, and you said, can you help me out? I'd say, no, I'd get out first. I'll do everything I can to get myself out. And then when I'm out, I lean a hand over to help you out. Yeah. When the airplane is going down, I put on my mask first, not your mask, yeah. my mask first. Mm-hmm. And that's the way, that's how I got better from depression was by what do I like? What do I not like? Well, people yeah. think you, this way of you or they think you're this person. Okay, well, I don't think that. Well, then they won't be happy about it. Okay, well, then I need to not give a shit about them being happy about it or not. Yeah. What's going to be the result of that? Well, they might say this to the other friends. Okay, I need to be happy with not giving a fuck what anyone thinks of me at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And once you get there, that's hard to unsee. That's like behind the curtain as well. You've, you've, yeah. you've gone behind the curtain of not giving a shit. And I talk about not giving a shit to people all the time. And it's not a tough thing. I'm not tough at all. It's not a real strong stoic thing i'm not strong or i'm not stoic but mm-hmm. i've just seen something like you mentioned that i can't unsee yeah. and i find that my bullshit radar is the needle is just on point all the time and if i'm sitting down talking to a girl that i like or maybe a new friend that i'm going to see and they start shit talking straight away they're out i yeah. won't even give them a second of my time and it's done you know now that and might that- be a, a bad thing but no, that and but look, because I I do very much um, admire, and I try to do it as much as I can, not caring what other people think. But it is hard to do, and like, did that take a long time to get to that place, or was it quite an yeah. instant thing? For no, you? not instant. I said it instantly, but I couldn't do it. I wasn't strong enough. I did care all the time. Mm-hmm. I said I didn't care, but I did. I tried not to care. Um, I tried not to care what anyone was saying. Like my thing is always like, look this is going to make me better or this is going to make me feel a little bit happy and I might be content in my life for a while. I went through years of trauma and now I might be content. So this is what I'm going to do. And then you say, well, how many people is this going to piss off? Well, there's seven. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, that's fine. They're going to, they're, 
it's okay for them to be pissed off if they're not my friend after this. That's also okay. Mm-hmm. Because when I was sitting in my apartment on my own and I contemplated, I contemplated killing myself, I was on my own and I never thought to ring any of them because yeah. they wouldn't have had the wherewithal to help me anyways. Yeah. So now that I want to make myself happy, I just do what makes me happy. Now, obviously, I won't go around and hurt somebody or do anything bad. Yeah. But like, I will make, I will change my mind at a drop of a hat if I want to. I will uh, have a different, I, I make whatever decision that I know will make me feel happy at all times. And mm-hmm. there's been times where people have said, well, I don't think you should have done that. And well, I think you should have done. And then if just ask them the five whys, why do you think I shouldn't have done that? Well, what I wanted us to do was, I don't give a shit what you wanted us to do. I could have killed mm-hmm. myself. I survived. There's certain things that I have to do to make me feel better. And I'm yeah. doing them. And that's it. And I'd never take criticism off anybody that I wouldn't go to for advice in the first place anyways, ever. Yeah. So I went from like 40 friends to about three. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I do always say like when people are, you know, come and talk to me about this kind of thing, like you shouldn't care what everyone thinks, but you should care what some people think. And they're, as you said, the people you'd go to for advice, it's nice to get their take on, you know, what you're doing or, you know, because they're the people who will be real with you. Uh, because people who don't really care about you, who are giving their opinion, are often giving it for self-serving reasons. But the people who care about you are giving you their reasons because they really want you to be as doing as well as you can. At least that's what I like to believe anyway. And then there's another element to it as well, where you say like, well, this person really, really cares about me, but they're one of these people that live in the bubble. So even if I do open up to them, they won't understand what I'm saying. And the advice they give me will only be from what they know in the bubble. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can't even talk to them, even though I know that they'd love me and jump in front of a bus for me because nothing I, they can say to me will make any difference whatsoever because they don't see the whole situation, which that makes you feel a bit lonely as well at times, you know, when you feel like yeah. no one understands you, you know, and and it's not this uh, love me, love me. No one understands me. I'm very, um, I'm a lone wolf or any of that tough yeah. bullshit. There's none of that at all, but it's very hard when you've been through um, a traumatic experience to have anyone to understand you, I find. Yeah, and uh, that's actually, I can't remember who said this, but uh, it was like a definition of loneliness. And they were saying, loneliness isn't being on your own because you can feel lonely when you're around people. Loneliness is feeling like no one understands you. And I've always found that to be quite powerful because it does feel true that it's not a case of like, because there's always been people around me, like a great family of great friends. But sometimes it's when you don't feel like they really get what you're going through. That's when you start to feel lonely. Yeah. Like, I know if the depression comes again, for instance, at any stage, I'm on my own 100% because who can you talk to? Who's Who's been in that situation? Who's been through the 10 years? Who? Nobody really that I know that well. So only mm-hmm. they'd be all living in their own bubble. And again, this is not a bad thing. This is just a fact. Like, so they, they can't really help you in, in the long run, I don't think. So it is a very lonely experience. But you talk about loneliness. Just talk to me about loneliness a small bit there and what you think of it and, and, and what it felt like and how you... How you feel about it today? Um, loneliness is it's it's strange because like I've since I was a child I've always had like this disposition to being alone. Um, meaning that like you know I like spending time on my own. I liked reading alone, and that was always fine. And then at a certain point, probably around the time Irby died, uh, spending time alone became this thing I feared um, because the depression and the thoughts about Irby dying um, would come in when I was on my own. Um, so I really resisted spending time on my own. So I think 
the times in my life where I've felt the most lonely are the times in my life where I'm trying to do anything but be on my own. So it can probably look from the outside inward that I'm, you know, thriving and that like I'm always at training, I'm always around people, I'm always doing this, this and that. And that's just because I'm running from acknowledging the 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 fear of isolation. For me, the difference between loneliness and isolation is or loneliness and solitude is that choice and um when I'm aware of that choice, not I'm not making the choice to be on my own, that's when the, the loneliness tends to seep in, you know. Is it that you feel lonely and you want to be with people, but you don't go out to see them? Or is it that you want to be with people, but nobody's calling? Um, it, Loneliness for me has always kind of revolved around romantic relationships. So it's often like, because I'll see like people in my life, like my brother or like my friends who've been in these like long term, like, you know, committed relationships. And because I could never in my early 20s figure out relationships because I was quite emotionally unavailable due to the depression, loneliness came from that avenue of life. So I'd see people or I'd know my friends like, oh, I can't meet up today because I'm with a girlfriend. And I'd be like, I have no one and there's no one here for me in that capacity. And I think that was the the big part of loneliness for me was like I wanted to have someone but I couldn't, and that caused me to become quite lonely. Yeah. I think both male and female can identify with what you said there, you know. Mm-hmm. I often see pictures on Instagram, like, I'm single as well. I decided, like, from the age of about 16 to about 30, um, I've been in relationships the whole time, whether it be, you know, small ones or long ones or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when I got depression, I actually made the decision that I'm not going to get involved with anybody because... It would have been a toxic relationship because I wasn't ready. What kind of person would I have been inviting in? What if we had a kid? To get? It could have been just a nightmare. So I decided that I wasn't going to do it. But that was, I suppose, going back to what you said, that was like solitude, whereas I chose yeah, not. But I still felt lonely because you see other people doing things and having their day together. But then I think, look, social media is not real. You know, true. you're sitting there wishing each other a happy anniversary, giving each other a kiss. And two days ago, you were fighting each other. One, he cheated on each other. Someone's gambling mm-hmm. all the money. That's just reality. Like, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's, like it's, the, um, the people know, I know, the people I know who are happy in relationships don't feel like they have to prove it to anyone. So 100%. like the happiest relationships I know, like one of them in particular, like my brother and his fiance, they don't post about each other all day on social media or, you know, do all but that. They're too busy of, enjoying their lives. They post yeah, them. exactly. Exactly. Like, so that's. Uh-huh. That's for me, that kind of, you know, uh, put the whole social media, you know, seeing couples happy on social media thing to bed for me was that the couples I know who are happy aren't doing that. So that's not real. Yeah. Incidentally, um, I'm now open and willing to get into relationships. So ladies, if you're listening to this, (laughs) (laughs) clockworkjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. No nudity, just uh, email will do. um, And I'm only half joking there as well. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a loneliness. The biggest surprise of my mental illness was loneliness. I had never felt lonely before. Mm-hmm. Um, 90%, some would say more, but 90% of my time that I spend is on my own. Yeah. By choice. I love my own company. I have done even when I was a child. I used to play with little figures like uh, Rambo or Thundercats yeah. or whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, And I enjoyed it. I used to have loads of cars, uh, small cars, dinkies, I suppose you call them. Mm-hmm. And I would stay there for four hours on a Sunday playing Tour de France. 
They just want to have five or six. No problem. And I loved it. And I had races and relationships in the car. I love my own company. I can sit down and watch a movie. I can go for a walk. I go Mm -hmm. to the cinema on my own. I love my own company. Yeah, I'm a big Um, fan of the cinema on my own. Now, like, especially because I figured out the loneliness thing. I've back in a place now where I'm quite similar, where I really, I spend a lot of my time on my own and I really enjoy it. And sometimes I'll be in a social situation and my battery will just run out and I'll be like, I need to spend a day on my own because, you know, this is getting too much. And that's, it's nice to be back in that again and be comfortable with being on my own because, you know, for a while it wasn't the case. It's cool because people say to you, well, what are you doing today? And you say, oh, I I can't do anything. I'm, I'm flat out. Well, what are you doing? I'm relaxing. Yeah. Said, that's not anything meet me down in the pub we'll have a drink and we'll watch one of the football games and no no i can't do that i'm yeah. literally so busy all day doing nothing so <laughs> what does that mean get up in the morning get a coffee maybe make some scrambled eggs maybe listen to a podcast when i'm going for a walk for an hour come back have a shave have a shower maybe make some nice food for later on and i may or may not have a can of beer later on my mm. day is full but that's yeah. <laughs> That's the the lower battery, the rejuvenation of my whole self and body. I do that all of the time. I think it's so important, you know. So important because we do live in that era of like hustle culture and productivity and all that kind of crack. And rest is as important and recuperation and giving yourself time to be with yourself. Because, you know, we we almost resist spending time in our own now because we're always connected. And I think it's so, so important. Like it has a lot of value in life if you do it. And I think when you're starting off, like if you're starting off from a place, you know, as you said, inside the bubble of if I'm bored, I'm on my phone or I'm doing X, Y, and Z. If you resist that urge and just, you know, do 10 minutes first, just start small, 10 minutes on your own, no one else. It can feel uncomfortable, but you just have to sit in that discomfort and get used to it. And it becomes something really valuable and important once you get used to it. You're so right. It's it. it it's uncomfortable that's why people stop straight away i don't like being on my own i have to be doing something i call to the next door neighbor i'll drive my car and get a trailer and bring it to a friend who i think needs it but didn't ask me to do it no sit down and relax yeah have a coffee go out in the garden do fucking go to town on yourself if you want do whatever it is that you want to do (laughs) yourself don't be worrying about it yeah Uh, you know that's like but in the relationship thing as well for me it's very very important like I am ready for one now, but I would go to my grave single forever if I thought I'd spend the rest of my life with someone who was in one of those bubbles, because that mm-hmm. would make me unhappy from the get go. Right. So it's a particular person, female that I'm looking for. And it's not really looks related, you know, like if I yeah. seen the most beautiful woman in the world to me, whatever. And uh, let me think the Shakira, right? The, mm-hmm. My uh, future ex-wife. So. <laughs> If I see Shakira and if I see her being rude to somebody, well, I, I no longer fancy her. Oh, you do, yeah. you do, because her body's nice. You'd want to have sex with her. Listen, I'm not a caveman. Mm-hmm. You know, I do not fancy her. If I see someone that I may not fancy, but they're really, really kind and thoughtful and strong and driven, I fancy them all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think that, that like changes as you get older, because I think in my early 20s, it would have been primarily a bit looks and then the personality comes after. But as I get older, that balance kind of tips and you're like, okay, yeah, they are attractive, but are they an attractive person? And they're two yeah. different things. And I think, you know, the, the latter becomes more important as you get older because you're like, okay, we're all kind of going to age out here. We're not going to look like this forever. So I need to actually be able and happy to spend time with you because if, if I'm only attracted to you and I, every time you talk, I just, 
can't deal with it and you're wrecking my head, then that's not going to last. 100%. We're, we're two lads talking about this and we're being genuine and being honest. We're going to break the internet, you know. People, there's <laughs> no one that's going to believe us at all. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so the loneliness thing again, just to, like that was the hardest thing, as I said. That was something that I didn't believe would happen to me. I never felt it before and I was stunned and it was an embedded. You know, sometimes when you're sick and you're cold from the inside out, Mm-hmm. So you could be sweating, but you're freezing inside. That's what the loneliness was like. It was yeah. torture. And that's even coming from someone who loved to be alone. That's how mm-hmm. bad it got, you know. Um, you were saying, so would you describe yourself as lonely now? Or would you describe yourself as comfortable in your own skin when you're yeah. alone? Or would it be a work in progress? Yeah, probably more so. I'm I'm very comfortable with who I am now. And I definitely know myself more. Um so like primarily I'm not lonely. Do I still experience loneliness at times? Absolutely. Like that's just something that happens, you know, but it's not as chronic. The loneliness isn't chronic anymore, meaning that like it's not something I experience all day, every day. It comes in pockets and that's the work in progress. But it's I'm definitely more in a place where I'm comfortable with myself again. I know what I need. I know what I want. I know what I dislike, which is probably the most important thing. And it's just feeding that uh, Lonely Boy is really, and I said this before it ever got published, like writing Lonely Boy was the best thing I've ever done for my mental health because I really got to a place where I understood myself uh, because the relationship I had with myself was a big problem too, where I was denying issues. I was not getting myself the help I needed because I probably at some, some subconscious level didn't like myself. And now I'm in a place where I do like myself. And that's that's a nice relationship to have, you know. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's, it's so great to hear you saying that. Like, I, I will say it. Like, I absolutely am head over heels in love with myself. Honestly, <laughs> I am. Um, I, I used to be at myself all of the time, like really, really bad. Um, any mis- I could be thinking back from a, a mistake I made seven years ago and my mm-hmm. stomach would wince like butterflies in my stomach for hours. And yeah. You know, but listen, everybody's fucked up. Mm, that's a fact. There's, there's nobody going around like like fucking Gandhi, you know, and there are other religious figures, by the way. But there's there's <laughs> there's nobody going around that that's perfectly at one. Like Wim Hof that does the breeding, all these people, they have bad days. Things don't yeah. go right for them as well. They think back. It's human. It's okay to be human as long as you can spend time with yourself, enjoy yourself, and are good to other people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, more think, so, for, well, first of all, good to yourself, and then you don't try to hurt anyone else. You're doing yeah. well. It's it's um. I I'm gonna leave a link to the book in the show notes, so you can go and have a have a look at it there. Um, Appreciate I believe that. I I was just I I was uh stalking your social media when I knew you were coming on, and I seen a post that more reprints have to be done because it was sold out. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's well, going to reprint now, so. Eh, look, it's been like I've written other stuff. Like I, I have poetry books and short stories, but um, this book is the most vulnerable work I've ever done. Um, and I think people are resonating with that, just the honesty of it. And like, because I, I don't, I didn't write the book just all the good parts. Like, oh, here's all the things people did to me and why I feel bad. The book is very much like looking at the monstrous parts of myself and the mistakes I made and the flaws and accepting them as part of who I am. And I think it's probably refreshing for people to see that because, you know, the era we live in, we put up the highlight reels, we put up all all the only the good things. And I'm just like, we all fuck up. I've done stuff I regret. 
I, there's part, there's years of my life where I don't like the person I was. That's okay. That happens. It's all part of the journey to getting to a place where you do like yourself. So it, it's great to see that it's gone to reprint. It, it does mean an, an awful lot to me because it's so much achievement, you know, it's, it's one uh, thing writing a book that means a lot to you and having some people say that it meant an, a lot to them and it helped them. But it's another thing when someone said, listen, there's not enough of these books. That's a huge compliment. It means it's um, resonating with an awful lot of people. I genuinely congratulate you on that. That's um, from my understanding of all the authors that, that I've spoken to on this, that doesn't happen very often, you know? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it feels surreal. Like the last six months has been really special. And um, when I was younger, I, I would have been like, you know, there's a goal, you meet it, you're on to the next thing, you're looking forward. And I've just been trying to be more present with this because it's probably not going to happen like this again. And it, it is really touching and it means a lot to me. So thanks for that. Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, you can only deal with what's happening now. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's the whole thing that you, you spoke earlier about, the stoic. Mm-hmm. I I love, uh, I've, I've read uh, Meditations and, and other yeah. bits and bobs and all that. Of course, I, everyone in the world has done it at this stage now. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I say that I've read it, I haven't read it. I've audio booked it while I was out walking. Yeah, you know? I can't. Um, it's incredible. It's kind of hard. It's a hard read or a hard listen to because it's not in order. And I think it's over 19 years, something yeah. like that. Uh, but it's like it, it's amazing how true all of that stuff still is today. Mm-hmm. That, that they're and, talking about. Like, it's like, It could have been written yesterday like by a professor in Harvard. Absolutely. And that's an uh, interesting thing about meditations is that uh, Marcus Aurelius never intended for that to be published either. Yeah, that was just his journal. And when he died, someone famed it and they're like, we're publishing this. This is unreal. Um, And it's just him telling himself how to live better and, you know, acknowledging that he messes up sometimes. And I think, you know, if a Roman emperor can do that, we can all look inward and address our own role in our unhappiness because Marcus Aurelius did it and it stood the test of time. So I think it's important to do that. There's two two uh, final questions, if that's okay. I probably kept you longer than I was supposed to, but um, okay. what advice would you give to somebody who is starting to write a book, is in mid-process, or what's, um, and I'm kind of asking for, my, for myself as well, what advice would you give a, a new aspiring author that wants to start doing it, like genuinely wants to, not someone who wants to have a book out and say, look at me, someone who wants to put in the work. What kind of advice or what did you learn during the process? Um, well, the first thing is that like the first, like the first draft. So like say from start to the book, to the end of the book and it's finished, that is probably going to be, it's not going to be the book that will be published, but you just need to go with your instinct and write whatever feels right. And don't like second guess stuff in the, in the first draft. And then when you get to the second draft, that's when you can rewrite stuff. So just write whatever comes into your head for the first draft. But I think the most important thing I learned over the course of my career is that rejection happens often and it happens more often than acceptance does, especially when you're trying to get a book published. So not taking rejection personally is difficult to put it. You do need to learn it and you need to understand that like publishers and agents get thousands of books every year. And because it's a book and it's art, it's very subjective. So if someone rejects you, it doesn't mean your work is bad. It just means it's not for them in that moment. Because when you get rejected, especially in the beginning, it can feel very personal. But it's just you need to override that feeling and understand that like this is just 
par for the course. Like it's a numbers game. So it's like I, I'm, my book is done. Everything is ready to go. I'm going to send out to a hundred different publishing companies, and at least ninety nine is going to say no. Just know that yeah. before you put pen to paper on first day. Jesus, absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard like, place to start from, you know. <laughs> but also, it also means like that sounds daunting. But it what what's also true is only one person needs to say yes. You don't need 50 people to say yes. You just need one. And that's so. And it is like sometimes you just get lucky. Sometimes you catch the right person at the right time. Other times, like for me with Lonely Boy, it took a long time to get a publisher interested. There was a lot of like, oh, this is really good and it will be published, but it's not for me. And that could be, you know, that happens. And you just have to, you know, be patient. And I know we talked about patience at the beginning. Um, hard to be patient in this day and age, but it is definitely worthwhile if you're if you really care about your book and care about the message you're putting out there. Then the patience is important, and I think most writers and most people who are successful. It's not a thing of talent; it's persistence. So, like, I think a lot of people give up because they've been rejected X amount of times. They're like, "Oh, this is never going to work," and it was probably right around the corner at that point. You just have to be persistent with it. Yeah, that's good advice. So it's like uh, when the first five publishers tell you no, that's a good sign because now you're five out of the way. Like be yeah. be prepared for that straight away because it is going like that. It even happened to um, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all yeah. of those. They they exactly. were all rejected several times. Isn't that true? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, I think J.K. Rowling went to like fourteen publishers and they all rejected, and then she came back to it later. So like, you know, it's not a reflection on you as a person. It's just the nature of the industry is it's mostly no because you know a lot of work has to be put into publishing a book so they want to be sure about it so yeah just keep tipping away like rejection happens it's part of life uh it's an uncomfortable part of life but it's part of the process it just hardens you as well you get you know i and like i'm at a point now where i get a lot of stuff published but i still get rejected all the time and it's just you know at, at a certain point it, it just rolls off you like it is uh, it is. that's the most irish thing i ever heard heard in my life just keep tipping away <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the most irish thing but it's also very true and and final question what advice would you give to somebody who is suffering from mental health right now what steps do you think they should take or um the one thing i would go back and change is that when i was experiencing depression and a lot of anxiety i refused to acknowledge it and I denied it to myself like you're not feeling this way stop just you know chin up and get through it, whatever allow yourself to feel the way you're feeling like feelings happen emotions happen you're supposed to feel them and let them guide what you need next so like for when I was going through it like because I denied it I didn't know where I was supposed to go because like I'm not feeling depressed it's fine whatever and I, and as a result of that, didn't get the help I needed. So I think allow, like, let the emotion guide you because if you're feeling miserable day in, day out, day in, day out, and you're not accepting it, you're not going to get the help. Yeah, that's uh, that's sage words. It was like, um, I always think that depression is your body's way of telling you that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's probably a simplistic way of saying it. But, um, no, but 100%. Okay, I'm going to leave the link to your book in the show notes go and check it out i'd also leave if you don't mind your instagram page but people can go on that and find your link tree and find your blog and everything else and maybe give you a follow and stuff like that and i say thank you for coming on the podcast it's much appreciated and thank you for being um being yourself i really appreciate appreciate that. that you know that's um one of the 
like that's a compliment that means more to me than anything when people are like you're being you're being true to yourself because i think it's easy to come on a podcast and be like artificial and superficial and just promote yourself but i think real conversation helps more than anything else so and thanks for having that conversation and you were very open and honest too so i, I appreciate it cheers brother that's soon all the best mm-hmm.